Hey, good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. Um, as, as Corey mentioned, we're, we're in a new series. Uh, we started last week. It's called Who's My Neighbor? And this series is all about love, right? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? That's the greatest commandment. And so every week, week going forward, we're going to look at people that we ought to consider our neighbors. Who is our neighbor? Who are our neighbors? And I pray that God will help us to see them as he sees them. And so today, we get to talk about the EGRs, the extra grace required kind of people in our lives, the difficult people who are so difficult to love as ourselves because they're just so hard to deal with, right? Because you and I, we, we have a friend in Jesus, Amen. We have a friend in Jesus, and yet we, we have some mutual friends, don't we? Like we all know Debbie, Debbie Downer, you know her? And, and Debbie's not always a female. Sometimes there are male Debbies in our lives who are always killing the joy in our lives, are always so negative, always judgmental, always criticizing, always complaining. Like nothing is positive in their life or coming from their mouth. You see this glass of water is so refreshing, it's half full, and what is it to them? No, it's full of germs and giardia. You're going to get disease. You'll be in the hospital all day. You're going to have the runs. And it's always negative, naysaying from Debbie Downer. Then we have our friend Juan, right? Juan Upper, who's always trying to one-up you and everything and trying to be the greatest and everything. And, oh, your kid made a shot in the game. My kid made the all-star team. Oh, you got a pay raise? I think I'm getting promoted in my job. And every time, always trying to do better than you and, and be the greatest. Over, or over dinner, they're always talking about what they've done, what they've accomplished, what they're getting their way. And they're always dropping names. Dropping facts, dropping numbers. Sometimes you wish you just drop dead, right? Like, not really, but that's what we feel like in our hearts. Like, just stop. You're always having to know it all, say it all, and, and you know them all. The one upper. And by the way, these are not actual people. Yesterday after church in the lobby, a couple came up to me. True story. They said, you're talking about us. I said, what? Her name was Debbie and his name was Juan. No, no joke. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not talking about you, okay? But, but we know these people, right? We know, we know Sandy, Sandpaper Sandy, who's so abrasive and always, always saying things that leave you wounded, that leave you, leave you bleeding after every conversation. After talking to that sandpaper person, you leave the conversation thinking, Who's, like, who says that? Like, who does that? Is this person even real? It's the abrasive, rough-edged, sandpaper people like Sammy or Sandy. Then we got our friend Mimi, don't we? Main show Mimi. Every conversation is about me, 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 me. This is what I've done. This is what I've accomplished. And this is what happened to me. And sometimes they're always the victim. Oh, woe is me. Like this person said this to me and hurt me. And like this whole conversation could go on over lunch. And they never once stop to hear from you or ask how you're doing. And they don't even realize it. 
And it's like that, that moment, maybe one day they actually stop to ask you, how are you doing? And you're like, oh my gosh, thank you for asking. I'm actually doing okay. And they go, okay, can I tell you what happened to me on the way here? Like someone totally cussed me out. And why would they do that to me? And, and they just go on about me, me, me. They're the main show. And you wish we could just cut to the credits already because I'm done. And, and we could go on and on about all the different EGRs. There's so many different types out there, but you get the point. They're the ones who wound us. They annoy us. They anger us. They frustrate us. They drain us. They're the unlovable people in our lives. So hard to love, and yet we're called to love them. They're the EGRs, extra grace required people. Now, where can the EGRs be found? Well, they're everywhere. They're in your office. They're in your ministry. They're on your team. They're in your life group. They're in your bed, right? Look, do this carefully with me. <laughs> do this carefully with me. Don't, actually, don't, don't do this, but to your left and to your right, they're in your row. They're everywhere, right? So everybody turn to your neighbor right now and say, I love you. I love you. Right? So how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because the reality is they're there. They're in our lives. And we are called to love them. Here's the reality. You can't control what you do. You can't control what they do. But you can control what you do. And so today what I want to do is I want to show you from the scripture a particular way we can love that difficult person as ourselves. Okay, so let's pray and then let's ask the Lord to speak to us. In fact, I want to give you a moment to pray. I want you to spend this moment to ask the Lord to reveal to you who your neighbor is. Who is that difficult person? that you need to be thinking about right now. Would you ask the Lord to give you a heart of humility to hear what the Spirit might be saying to you this morning? And so, God, this is our plea. This is what we ask this morning, that you would help us to see as you see, that you would hear what you want us to hear and help us to change in ways that reflect our God. So speak to us now through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles or your apps, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And this is a teaching of Jesus, and Jesus, I don't know if you know, know that this was in the Bible, but he's talking about EGRs in this teaching. Here's what he says about the EGRs. In, in verse 27, he starts off by saying this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And we'll stop right there. This passage is about EGRs. 
The Greek word for EGRs is EGRos. It's written, no, I'm just kidding. There's no Greek word for that. There's no Greek word for EGR. But if you look at this list, what is it? It's all the unlovable people. He says those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you, those who take from you, those who strike you. And so how are we supposed to treat them? Well, he gives us a bunch of commands in this passage. You should love them. You should do good to them. You should bless them. You should give to them. And then here's the one I want to highlight in verse 28. In fact, underline this. He says, pray. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, is it only those who abuse you we ought to pray for? No, I think it's for anyone who's hard to love. We ought to pray for them. You go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 in the Sermon of the Mount. In that context, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, those people you would not think about praying for, pray for them. And so that's going to be the focus of this message because there's a lot of things we can say about how we can start trying to love the unlovable, the EGR. But I want to focus on probably what might be the most powerful thing you can do when it comes to that difficult relationship. And that's to pray. And so I want to give you three ways we can pray. How in the world do we pray for the one I don't want to pray for? Let me give you three. If you're taking notes, here's the first way you can pray. First of all, number one, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Let's start right there. Because when you pray, it's probably quite natural that you're praying for your own needs. If you ever recorded your prayer in a journal or even record yourself out loud, you play it back and you'll probably find that you pray for yourself a lot. And that's okay. I pray for myself too. If I feel sick, God, please heal me. If I'm feeling anxious, God, please give me a, a peace in my heart. If, if I'm going into a job interview, God, please provide, help me to get this job. And so we're constantly bringing our knees before the Lord and we're seeking God's best for us. And that's okay. That's totally fine to pray for yourself. In fact, I want to challenge you. If you have been wounded by someone or hurt by someone or frustrated with someone, the best thing you could do is you ought to pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. How, though? How should we pray for ourselves? Well, pray for God's best in us. Remember last week we talked about love, a definition of love being to, to desire God's best for the other person, seeking God's best for the other. And if you're going to pray for yourself and love yourself that way, pray for God's best in you. And, and ask God, what's your best for me? What's, what's your desire for, for my heart? What do you want to do in me? And I can guarantee you, God wants to do something in you. He wants to do something deep and transformative in you. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, a couple books over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And here's what Peter says to the Christians, the church. He says this in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, that's talking about Jesus, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is doing here, he, he's drawing an analogy. And he's comparing the people of God to the temple in Jerusalem, he's drawing up this picture of a, of a building, the place where it was believed that the presence of God dwelt. And he says, 
as you come to the living stone, in reference to Jesus, Jesus is also known as our precious cornerstone. And if you don't know what a cornerstone is, the cornerstone is oftentimes that first stone that was laid in the building of a, of a building. It was often laid there in the corner. And it was the foundational piece because this is where all things begin. And it was based off of this cornerstone that every other stone in that building would be patterned off of this stone. It would be shaped and, and molded to look like this. And also every, every other stone would be built and oriented around that foundational piece. And Peter is saying, you, followers of Christ, you are living stones like our living stone. And he's saying that we are being built upon him. Now, my question is, how are we being built? And you'll notice that he does, it says, you are built, period, done. He says, you are being built in the process. How are we being built? Well, I think one way we're being built is that as we come to Christ, we're adding to the number. The, the kingdom of God is expanding, it's being extended. That's true. So numerically and physically, we are being built. But, but I also believe that what, what he has in mind here is we are being built spiritually. As we come to, to, to Jesus, as living stones, we are being shaped and molded to match Christ in his likeness. We are being built upon the cornerstone. Because he says this is a spiritual house that's being built. You're being sanctified as a holy priesthood. A sanctified priesthood. I love the picture we have in 1 Kings chapter 5 when the first temple of Jerusalem was being built, Solomon's temple. And in 1 Kings 5, Solomon has these people and he tells them that they were to take stones and fashion them and shape them in the quarry so that they would be used for the building of this temple. Now what's a quarry? Here's a modern day picture of a quarry. It's where rocks are cut. And then they are chiseled and chipped away at, shaped, sanded down, and prepared for the use of construction. Right? The, the quarry is the place where they're being shaped and prepared for building. And I love, I love that picture because I think it's a beautiful picture of, of the church. Right? Because what's the church full of? The church is like a quarry and we're full of what? We got a bunch of you rough-edged, <laughs> abrasive hard blockheads <laughs> that's that's what you are that's what i am this is what we are and yet god is doing something in us to shape us what happens when you take a bunch of rough edged blockheads and, and they butt heads and they collide and they they knock up against each other and rub each other the wrong way what happens well over time something happens you get your rough edges knocked off, and you get, begin to be smoothed out. I, I uh, love to surf at this one particular surf break, one of my favorites, and many of you guys know it, it's called Church. It's down uh, off of Camp Pendleton near San Onofre, and I, it's weird that it's called Church. I don't know who named it that. I don't know why they called it that, but it's called Church. But what I love about it is that at certain tides, when, when the waves are coming in, you just hear this crazy crunching sound, kind of like this, like this. 
just constantly crunching and, and, and this big rumbling sound. And, and if you look closely, what it is, it's, it, it's the water coming in and these, these rocks, these stones just hitting up against each other, on top of each other, constantly rubbing up against each other. But if you look closely at, at, at these rocks, they're actually beautifully smooth stones. How did they get this way? Were they made like this? I think it's season after season after season of just colliding and crashing and rubbing and being washed by the water that they become beautiful stones. I don't know why that place is called church. I really don't know who named it that. But isn't that a perfect picture of what God is doing in his church where he was allowing us to be put in a context where people are going to rub us wrong and butt heads with us. And yet perhaps the master architect himself is building his house. Perhaps he allows the EGR in your life where it allows you to be in the same office as that, as that person because he knows precisely what you need to smooth you out and to perfect you and to make you look like the cornerstone. Maybe he knows that you need to grow as a person of patience, so he allows you to be with that coworker who's so annoying. Maybe he, he knows that you need to be a person of humility to grow in that, so he puts you with that competitor who's arrogant and proud. Maybe he wants to slow you down so you would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So he's allowed you to be with that, that doormate or that classmate who's always quick to get angry and slow to listen. And you're realizing what I need to avoid and what I now need to be. And God precisely and sovereignly puts you in a context with the person who's going to shape you the way he needs to shape you. We have a re-engaged ministry here at this church. It's a marriage enrichment study we do every Wednesday night here. And for 15 weeks, there's about 50 of us who are taking this, this course and and we're, we're, we've signed up to work on our marriage, to work on our marriages. And when I say to work on us, I really mean to work on me. That, that's what it's all about. You'll realize when you get into the study, it's all about how, how can God work on me. And early on, there's this chapter that says, take a chalk and draw a big circle around yourself. And your job is to focus on changing everyone inside that circle. You change everyone inside that circle, and we got tricked. This is about me. And so that's, that's probably the best way to work on a difficult relationship is to realize there's some work to be done in me, that God wants to show me something about my heart and my character, and we start there. We can't always change the person, but we can, we can change ourselves. And not by ourselves, with the help and with the grace of God. And for some of us, extra grace is required. And so we start there. If there's a difficult person in your life, in the EGR, start by praying for yourself. Secondly, how else, how else can we pray? Write this down if you're taking notes. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your neighbor as yourself. Right, because if we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we're going to pray for ourselves, why don't you pray for them as you would pray for yourself? 
And if we're praying for God's best for us, God, have your way in us, unfold your will in my life, why don't you go ahead and pray the same for the person who frustrates you or annoys you or simply bothers you? Pray for God's best in their life. And can I suggest a prayer that you can start praying? Like, here's a practical prayer. Prayer, Pray pray something like this. God, if that person has been hurt, would you heal them? If that person has been wounded, would you heal them? If that person has been wronged, would you redeem them? The next time you're, you're hurt or annoyed or frustrated or offended, pray. If that person's been hurt, heal them. If they've been wronged, redeem them. And I pray, I, I, I bet when you start praying for that other person, that difficult person, a couple things might happen. For one, God who created the mountains and is able to move mountains, do you believe that he could actually change hearts? Do you believe that he can correct character? We have to believe that. And so pray, because when you pray for them, maybe God's going to do something in that unlovable person. He's going to help them to see something you couldn't get them to see or help them hear something you couldn't get them to hear. And by the power of God, because he's greater than you, maybe he can make the unlovable person more lovable. Maybe he'll do that in answer to your prayer. But... God may change that person who is unlovable and make them more lovable, but perhaps as you're praying for them, God's actually going to make you to become more loving. Yeah, you might make the unlovable person more lovable, but what if God in your prayer is making you more loving? Because something happens when you pray for someone sincerely and humbly, you want God's best for them. Your heart for that person does not stay the same. It will not stay the same. Test that. Try it. Why? Well, well, a few things can happen because when you're humbly praying, God, if that person has been hurt, would you truly heal them? If they've been wronged, would you redeem them? And you're praying for them. That takes a humble posture. And in that humility, maybe God will see that opportunity to reveal to you that perhaps you have a part in the hurt. That, yeah, they're wounded, they're hurt, they've been wronged, and perhaps he's going to show you that you actually have a part in that. That as you're praying for the speck in their eye, he's going to reveal to you the plank that's lodged in yours. That might happen. Or maybe as you're praying for them, it has nothing to do with you. They've been hurt, but that was like 20 years that have passed. You were totally uh, apart from that whole situation. But, but as you're praying, maybe... You're realizing and remembering, oh yeah, maybe something did happen to them. And it reminds us that that maybe they have a story. That the way they are comes from somewhere. Why they did what they did came from somewhere. You have to understand that, that nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks to themselves, hmm, who can I hurt today? Nobody's doing that. No one's like, I got a whole laundry list of things to do today. But first of all, who can I make my enemy? Who can I annoy? Nobody wants to make their life miserable by making other people's lives miserable. But it happens. Why? Well, a lot of times it's because hurt people hurt people. And wounded people will wound people. 
It's inevitable. It happens. Some people, as you're praying for them, you'll realize, oh, maybe, maybe they've been a victim of abandonment or abuse or unfaithfulness or, or bullying. Or maybe they have a situation they never asked for. Maybe they didn't ask for having a broken family with, with parents who are broken. Maybe they didn't ask to be fatherless. Maybe they didn't ask for alcoholism in their family. Maybe they didn't ask to be born with this mental disability. Maybe they didn't ask for this personality disorder, but that's the situation they came in. And as we're praying for them, maybe God's reminding you, hey, maybe they have a story. And as James 1.19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And by praying, that's causing us to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, slow to react. And let, let me just listen for a bit. What's your story? I, I remember reading this article, and this author was talking about his Aunt Lori. And in this article, he, he, he says, man, if you saw her in this one particular season of your life, of her life, he's like, she's the kind you would see and you would literally want to cross the street and walk on the other side and pretend you didn't see her. Remember we talked about that last week, story of Good Samaritan? He's like, yeah, that was her. He says, when you see her on the street, you would probably think she's a, she's a drug addict, she's a junkie, she's a convict. And he says, if you think those things, when, when you saw my Aunt Lori, he says, you'd be right. She was a heroin addict. She got locked up several times. She's caught up in a whole bunch of different relationships, messed up relationships with a bunch of messed up men. And he says, if you thought that about my Aunt Lori, you'd be correct. But even though you'd be accurate about your judgments of her, you'd feel compassionate if you knew her story. And he goes on, he says, if you knew her story, you would know that her whole path of destruction could be traced back to one particular day. He says, it was a beautiful summer day, family vacation. It was her, her husband, Dean, their daughter, Tina, enjoying a beautiful day on the boat on the lake at their vacation home, they're on this lake, and as they're in this boat, their little daughter Tina is leaning over to, to watch the water as they're skipping over the lake, and she falls into the lake. And, and the father, Dean, instinctively, as any good father would do, he jumps in to get her, to save her. The problem is, he writes, neither Uncle Dean nor Tina knew how to swim. And so to make a long story short, both of them ended up drowning at the lake that day. And he writes, the, the funeral was a few days later, and here's what he writes. He says, a few days later was the kind of funeral you pray your family never has to experience. Dean and Tina were placed in the same coffin. And when my aunt saw the body of her husband holding the body of her little girl, something inside her broke. It was a kind of pain no human heart could possibly endure. When my Aunt Lori made the decision to put that needle into her arm for the first time, it wasn't so that she could be high. It was so that she could be numb. And because that pain never 
seemed to go away, the needle kept on going into her arm. Now, does her tragedy justify the sin? It doesn't. But does it change something inside of our hearts? It ought to. Because instead of coming at her with judgment, now we come with compassion. Instead of seeing, seeing that person as your enemy, now you could come at them with empathy when you realize maybe they have a story that I should sit and listen to. Maybe it's coming from somewhere or something, and I should listen to that story. See, hurt people hurt people. Burned people will keep burning people. Jaded people will jade people. But what if you could help break that pattern? What if you could help put a wedge in that and decide to love them with grace? Because I'm telling you, I've seen it. Loved people love people. And recipients of grace sometimes become distributors of grace. It's amazing what grace can do. I pray that that's our story, that we as people who have received grace are distributors of grace. That happened to us. Let me do that for you. So we can love our neighbors by praying for yourself and then praying for your neighbor as yourself. That's amazing grace. Let me give you one more way to pray. If you're taking notes, one more way to pray. Pray against that enemy. Pray against your enemy. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, what? pray against your enemy. I thought we we're supposed to pray for. What do you mean pray against? Well, can I remind you that that EGR in your life is not your enemy. That difficult person is not your enemy. Remember in Ephesians 6, let me remind you who your enemy is. In Ephesians 6, Paul's talking about relationships, husbands and wives, slaves and masters. And, and he talks about how it's going to be hard, but here's what you can do. Then he says this in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul reminds us that the person you dislike, that arrogant person, that selfish person, that greedy person, believe it or not, that's not your enemy. The enemy is your enemy. There is a spiritual enemy lurking in the spiritual realms who would love to make your life very difficult. And Paul, I'm sure, speaks out of his experience. He's dealt with a lot of people who had flesh and blood. Many experiences. I think about Acts chapter 16. And in Acts 16, Paul and his missionary group, they're going out and they're preaching the gospel and they're trying to do ministry in the name of Jesus, going from town to town. And then there's this girl in, in the town of Philippi who starts following them. She starts following them. And here's what it says. Here's how Luke tells it. Luke's part of that missionary team. He says in Acts 16, 16, he says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. I don't think they knew this at the time. But verse 17 says, she followed Paul and us crying. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she just kept following them and shouting this over and over again for many days, it says. For many days. Now, why is Paul 
so annoyed because we find out later he gets annoyed by this. To me, I'm like, man, this is free publicity. She's like preaching for you. You can save your voice and it sounds pretty right. It sounds pretty accurate. Why are you annoyed, Paul? And some scholars will say, well, well, maybe it's because there's no Greek definite article if you look at it. So instead of the way, she's saying these people believe in a way of salvation. And, and so it's a false message. But if that were the case, wouldn't Paul shut it down right at the get-go, right on day one and not let it continue? That's a false message. But he, he actually lets it go on for many days. Why? Well, even if her message was accurate. That could get annoying, can it? I mean, have you ever seen those street preachers on the corner, and, and this is the way they want to do it, and that's fine, and they, they're on that bullhorn, and they say, turn to Jesus, repent from your sins, or you're going to hell, judgment day is coming. Have you seen those people? Right, and, and let's say you drive by, and you just want to be loving, say, God bless you. And they go, are you a Christian? You say, why, yes, I am. They're like, all right, and they follow you along. You go to Costco. They follow you to Costco. Hey, this person's a Christian too. They believe that Jesus is the way, and if you don't repent, you're going to hell. And you're like, dude, are you serious? And then, then you go to the library. You just want to study. Hey, this person's a Christian. Believe what they believe. They believe in Jesus, and if you don't, you're going to hell. It's like, as accurate as that message might be, that's annoying. Like, I wouldn't want that around me. And I would say, stop. Like, don't represent me like that. Let me speak for myself. Please, stop. And I'm wondering if Paul, at some point along the way, is realizing, man, this girl who keeps shouting these things, I don't think this is from God. Because it's actually really distracting to our ministry and is really hindering what we're trying to do with the gospel. And at some point, I don't know at what point, on what day, but he realized, I don't think this is from God. I think this is spiritual warfare. And then in verse 18, this is what it says. It says, Paul, having been greatly annoyed, he's so annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And what happens? Sure enough, the demon comes out of her that very hour. So, what's my point? I'm not saying you should go and cast out the demon out of everyone you think is crazy. <laughs> right? Don't, don't do that. Don't go. Some, some husbands right now are like, oh, like don't, don't go exercising your spouse. Okay? You'll, you're, you're the crazy one if you do that. What I'm saying is that sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the enemy is involved. And the EGR, that difficult person, that hard-to-love person, is not your enemy. The enemy is your enemy. The EGR who has flesh and blood also has a soul that God deeply loves and longs for. And the enemy would love to keep that soul far away from experiencing the fullness of God's love. That's what the enemy is up to. And he would love to see flesh and blood turn against flesh and blood. He would love to see followers of Christ turn against followers of Christ. When I was in college, we used to always play this game called Mafia. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's a game called Mafia. And let's say there's about 20 people in a circle. And two people are secretly designated as the Mafia. 
And so the mafia's job is to, uh, to stay alive and to get everybody voted out and killed off. And everybody else is trying to find out who the mafia is. And their job is to try to kill the mafia off. And whoever's left standing wins. That's how you play the game. And I remember one time playing with our, with our church group, and I've never seen this done before, but this happened once, where the two mafia, the first round, like the first minute of the game, they secretly killed each other off and removed themselves from the circle. That was their plan. They, they removed themselves from the circle, and for 45 minutes, all of us were accusing each other, blaming each other, suspecting each other, interrogating each other. You're the mafia. No, you're the mafia. 45 minutes, they just sat here watching us kill each other. And after 45 minutes, we all killed each other off, and they're like, <laughs> we win. And I think a lot of times that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to turn people against each other, especially Christians against Christians. And I want to be very careful because I, I don't think Satan always creates the conflict, but sometimes he does. Or sometimes he'll take a conflict that's already existing and he'll just perpetuate that and egg it, egg it on. But I think one of the most overlooked reasons for why we experience difficulty and conflict in our relationships is because there's a real enemy at work who would love to turn people against people. He's the one who divides. And so when we pray against the enemy, I want to encourage you, pray. And say, Lord, if there's anything spiritual in nature here, would you prove that you are greater than he who is in the world? And he might answer that prayer because he is indeed greater than he who is in the world. And maybe if there is a demonic presence, he'll deliver them. If, if there's a foothold in someone's heart, maybe he will give them freedom. He is able to defeat the enemy. Do you believe that? And so pray against the enemy. But with that being said, let me say this. Sometimes it will be spiritual nature. And you'll pray and you'll plead against the enemy. And, and God may not make it all go away right away. Why would he do that? Sometimes the spiritual battles where extra grace is required. Maybe he really wants to supply that extra grace. And when you're annoyed again or hurt again, maybe he just wants to give some extra grace. Paul talks about a time when there was this spiritual torment in his life. A, a messenger from Satan was tormenting him, harassing him. And he kept praying to God. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. He said, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Was that a physical thorn? No. He says, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times he prayed. God, take it away, take it away, take it away. But what did Jesus say? Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough to sustain you. For when you are weak, then my power is made strong. God's best interest in you, his desire and will in your life may be to keep you in a situation, in a certain relationship or certain people in your life where not only is grace required, but extra grace is going to be required. And he loves to give Grace upon grace. And when that situation doesn't change right away, even though you've been praying about it, maybe some grace, more grace will be needed. They hurt you again. Let me give you a little bit more grace, extra grace. 
How in the world is that in God's best interest? Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Because where grace abounds, where God's grace abounds, so does God's glory. And that is his ultimate aim, to bring glory to his name. The more grace seen in you and coming out of you, the more glory goes to the God who lives in you. Amen? The more grace in you, the more glory to the God in you. If the Lord could remove that EGR when you ask him to, because he could do that. But if he doesn't, perhaps it's because he wants to provide you the grace that is sufficient to keep you sustained, to keep you enduring until everyone on the inside of this circle is completely changed. Would you pray for yourself, pray for your neighbor as yourself, and would you pray against the enemy? I want to close by sharing this. I was looking through my old hard drive this past week, looking at some old pictures, and I came across these pictures of my son Evan. And I'm reminded that when Evan came into the world, I was so excited that my firstborn was going to be a son. And from, from an early age, I wanted my son to just look like me. And so I, I would dress my son like me. I would find these outfits to make him look like me. Then as he grew up, I was hoping that he would become a surfer like me and do the things I love. And recently we hit the bike park and I want him to love mountain biking like me. Then when I have a chance to cut his hair, I want to cut his hair like mine and make him look like his daddy. And there was a time when I remember years ago, like there's this whole trendy fad where uh, people would take pictures planking on like random objects. They would find the most random places and, and you would plank and find these positions. So once I had my son in the world, I would make him plank too. And I would make him look like <laughs> daddy, whatever. T I love it when my son looks like me. People would say, oh my gosh, your son, he's like a mini me. I'd, on the outside, I'd be like, nah. And the inside, I'd be like, yeah. Right? Like, that's my son. I love it when my son does the things I do, looks the way I look, when my son reflects me. And I believe our heavenly father loves it when his children, his sons, and his daughters look a lot like him, when we reflect the image and the character of our heavenly father. And perhaps it's in these contexts that he puts us in, having EGRs in our lives by his grace, by his sovereignty. Maybe that's his way of making his children look like him. That with all the difficult people around us, God delights in dressing you in garments of grace. Let me put this garment of grace on. Let me put a little extra grace here and a little extra grace. There, there we go. You look like me. Sometimes our Father will put us around people where extra grace is required. And I believe that's God's best interest for us. Because when we are dressed in grace, and grace is seen in us, then glory goes to the Father and the God who lives in us. Amen? Amen. Would you guys bow your heads with me? God, I pray that now that the message is done, Lord, we would take what you just poured into us, what we now know you would help us to pour it out. 
Help us to be people changed and renewed from the inside out. Constantly remind us of your grace and help us to be people of grace. God, we cannot do this on our own. We, we confess, we admit we are powerless and we're weak. But Lord, we thank you that we have the greatest, the strongest, the mightiest God living in us and with us. So help us, God. Help us to be a beautiful body that reflects our Christ. Help us to be the light of the world where people will see us, people of amazing grace, and be so drawn to you, not, not repulsed by the church, not turned off by the church, but drawn to the church and, and the head of the church, which is Christ. So help us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.